it's really, really easy to get discouraged. But you got to remember, every time something discourages you, whether it's like a coworker who you feel they're sabotaging you or a boss who's giving you all the crappy jobs or family that's giving you attitude because they don't like your choice of career, you got to remember everything you're feeling, there are other women that have experienced it and they pushed through and they made it happen for themselves. And you have to realize that you can do it too. And it sounds like maybe that's too simple, but it's basically all it is. Just know that you are not alone. You can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Femcanics, I want to hear from you and get your feedback. I want to know what you like or don't like about the podcast. You can leave a message by calling 614-636-2240. Again, it's 614-636-2240. Leave me a message and who knows, you might hear yourself on the podcast. Joanne Bortles is in the driver's seat today. She has owned and worked a custom paint shop for almost 40 years. Joanne shares stories about growing up in the 60s and 70s and making her way through the industry during these times. Get ready to enjoy the journey down memory lane, all while getting words of wisdom from this iconic badass. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Joanne Bortles in the driver's seat today. Welcome to Femcanic Garage, Joanne. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great being here. I am super excited to get you on here. I actually found you on Instagram, and funny story for the Femcanic community is we were actually at the rooftop women crushing it event at SEMA that Bogey uh, hosted, and we didn't even chat with each other there. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, that's the thing about, about SEMA show is it's so high energy all day long, going, going, going. By the time night rolls around, you don't even realize how tired you are. That is so true. Yeah, I am so with you. And we didn't realize it till after the fact, too. But I actually found you on Instagram, and you had posted some of your jobs that you've done. And there was one that stuck out in my head. It was of the Firebird. Yes. The actual painting. Was it on a Firebird or the Trans Am? Was this a oil painting, or was it um, a car that I painted? A car that you painted. It was actually on the hood. Was it the like the Trans Am like bird like the yes. gold with all the different yes yes that was, a, that was a client's car that was a seventy nine Smokey and the Bandit Firebird. I- I'm telling you what I looked at that and it would be tough to convince people that that was actually painted. You did such a meticulous and amazing job on that that when I uh, reposted it on my page and was uh, giving you props, there were people like really? That's painted? It looks like a decal. Like it is so meticulously and perfectly done. It was amazing. Well, thank you. One advantage that I had was I actually had the original decal off of the car. I had the client meet me at the end of a hot summer day and I peeled the decal off of the car and then uh, put it on like um, some backing paper. And that's how what I use to figure out my stencils and my colors. How did you not rip it when you peeled it off? Ah, just, you know, living here in the Carolinas, it can get really hot in the summertime and it was a black car. Mm-hmm. So it was just a matter of just very gently uh, lifting it up and sliding pieces of backing paper underneath it. And 
eventually got it off and got all the stripes off the car too. Wow. The, the patience of a saint, man. I'll tell you what. Thank you for filling out the pre-interview form because it's a uh, form that I look through and get to know my guests even more. And when I was reading through it, your career, over 40 years of owning your own custom paint shop, and you were doing it when it wasn't a trend or cool to be a female doing it. Like now it's almost kind of trendy and cool to say that, but you did it when it wasn't the cool thing to do or a novelty, so to speak. And you've just stayed at it. And you have so much history, so much experience. This could go a hundred different ways with all the different things. But I think maybe where I want to start is spend a little bit of time bringing the listeners through your journey and see where that takes us. So why don't we kind of start in the beginning? Like, where did you start? How did you get into this? I was always into cars, and one of my earliest memories is I was a little kid, and we lived, there was this uh, bridge that went over the Connecticut River, the Bissell Bridge, and the entrance for the Bissell Bridge was down the hill from our backyard, and I used to hear the cars and the trucks, and it was just so fascinating, and one day, I hear this really loud noise. And I go running as fast as I can. And this was before kindergarten. So I was like a real little kid. And I see this uh, guy all dressed in black leather on this chopped motorcycle. And I thought, that is what I want. And then also on uh, Saturday nights, I would go over to my friend Don Marie's house. And she lived down the street from this speed shop called the Syndicate of Speed. And we'd sit there on um, her second story front porch and we would watch the action down the street with all the hot rod cars coming and going. And I was mesmerized. I was like, okay, between cars and motorcycles, this is what I want my life to be. You were hooked. I was, you know, I wasn't playing with dolls. I was playing with Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars and things like that. So I took up welding when I was 15 years old. In high school, we had a state-of-the-art shop area, and it was one of the nicest, you know, for, for the working in the trades, we had one of the nicest high schools in the state. And I wanted to take auto mechanics, and so they told me, um, you're an art major, you can't take mechanics. We have to save those classes for the boys who are going to earn a living, you know, working on cars. And so I looked at them, and I'm like, well, can I take welding? And they're like, yeah, there's not too many people signed up for welding. So I took welding and I was the best welder in my school. And all the guys started bringing me their broken car parts to <laughs> fix. Let me ask a couple of questions here, Joanne, because I'm, I'm curious something. Um, so this was in high school, right? So you were probably 16, 17 years old? Yeah. And they said, no, you can't go into that pretty much nope. because you're a girl and you're not going to go into that as a career? Or was it because of your major? It was because of my major. I was an art major and an English major. In fact, by the time I was in my junior year, I had taken every art class I could take. So for the last two years of school, I was in independent study, which is basically whatever I wanted to do. And everybody figured that I would either be an artist or a writer. Makes sense based on your area of focus. But I, you know, I took welding and for me, welding was art, especially TIG welding. I mean, I learned um, stick welding, MIG welding, but I loved TIG welding because you could be so clean with it and just, it was for me, it was like almost an art form and these guys would bring me these parts and, you know, it was like a challenge to figure out, okay, how can I fix this linkage? Or yeah, they said they couldn't, they couldn't fix this uh, aluminum case for this uh, motorcycle. Well, I'm going to try to fix it. And that kind of, uh, that's, that is really what defined me in high school. I was known as a gearhead by the guys, not really an artist. Oh, that's interesting. Now, how were you received in the welding class? Because I imagine, were you the only female in that class? Oh, Yeah. And I hope you don't mind me asking, but what year would that have been? Like ballpark? Uh, 76, 77. 
So, I mean, and that puts things into perspective because you, you hear the challenges that women face today. And that was in the 70s. And I think, to me, we've made improvements, but there are still some of those challenges there. Well, the guys in school, I mean, I, I had a Mustang that I drove and I was... I was not exactly um, a very meek person in high school. I was pretty bold. Uh, I didn't dress in dresses. I was I was a real tomboy. And the guys pretty much they got out of my way. You know, I, I was five foot three, a hundred pounds, but they respected me. You were confident and carried yeah. yourself with confidence. I love it. I just out of curiosity, what year was your Mustang? Sixty nine. Nice. Okay. Being a gearhead, (laughs) you said Mustang. I'm like, oh, what year? (laughs) Well, that was how I got the name Crazy Horse because I was kind of extreme and I drove a Mustang. So it's all started then. I was going to ask you about that. That makes sense now. So you did the welding class. You went through that. You were the best welder in your class to the point that other people were bringing their projects to you. Where did you go from there? You graduate from high school. What's next for Joanne? Well, I got accepted into Parsons School of Design in New York City, and I went there for about a year, but my dad was a disabled World War II veteran, and after a year living away from home, I had to move back home because my parents needed me to help out. My dad's war injuries were really starting to act up, and I needed to be there for him, and so I got a job at this... Uh, I had planned on going back to school, but you know how that works out. So I had gotten a job at this diesel pump factory, standardized diesel systems, which was, you know, five minutes from my parents' house, work second shift there, and, uh, you know, still driving Mustangs, working on cars. So I'm at work one night, and this guy who was a buddy of mine from high school, he's, he's teasing me. And he goes, oh, look at the hotshot artist down here grubbing with the grubs. You're such a hotshot artist. Why don't you paint my bike tank? And I was like, okay. (laughs) Calling his bluff. And I had an airbrush because I had started airbrushing when I was at Parsons. So I did the cover of the second Molly Hatchet album on the top of his Sportster tank. And I was finished with it. All I had to do was clear coat it. And one night at work, he starts insulting a friend of mine. And I told him to take it back. And he goes, I'm not going to take it back because it's true. And it was true. But, you know, that was the kind of person I was. I stood up for my friends right or wrong. (laughs) And, you know, I'm like, take it back or I'm going to buff the mural off your tank. And he's, no, you won't do that because it's too good. So the next morning I woke up and I went out there and I squirted compound down there and I buffed the mural off his tank. And I drove down the street to his house, drove up the sidewalk, uh, kind of ran into his front steps. He comes running out of the house and I throw the tank at him. I go, here's your effing bike tank. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> everybody in town is like, crazy horse threw Johnny B's tank at him. Oh my God. She turfed up as she ran into his house. And, you know, it's just this big like rumor got started. You didn't just drive up on it. By the end of it, you like drove through his house and around it. <laughs> you know, it, crew and uh so all these guys are like hey you want to paint my car you want to paint my bike tank and (laughs) that was how it started wow going in really making a statement i love it so that's how your business really got started from that point forward it was just taking on jobs one after another then yeah it was taking on jobs and then uh, about 1981 my boyfriend at the time and i we rented this old truck garage in really rough section of Hartford, Connecticut, the North End. And uh, we started working on Mustangs. We're going we're gonna to have our own Mustang restoration shop. And at one time, we had 23 Mustangs all at once. So, you know, working second shift at night, uh, get out of work, go down to the Mustang shop, work on cars until dawn, sleep a few hours, get up, work on paint. And, you know, the, the, the kind of energy you have when you're that young. And uh, things were going along pretty good. And then the shop got burglarized and all the tools and equipment got stolen. And that was the end of the Mustang shop. But I, I kept oh, painting. Wow. I kept painting bikes. And then for a while, I was working at this Jaguar uh, shop down in Stratford, Connecticut. 
And that was where I really began to learn automotive. My boss there, he was so helpful. He'd be like, okay, I'm going to show you how to take this quarter panel off the car. And he'd say, you see this spot? Here's a spot weld. Here's a spot weld drill. You got to drill out all these welds and get this quarter panel off the car and don't, don't bother me again. <laughs> so, and that was kind of the way I learned everything. Like people ask me, how did you learn how to paint? And, you know, I bought a couple of little books from Peterson Publishing, but I'm basically self-taught for fabrication, restoration, painting. It's just kind of a matter of figuring it out. You know, it, it just continues to blow my mind here. And I'm, I have to kind of bring the listeners along here to really understand this because you're you're very modest and and I respect that about you. But as the host, I, I I really have to bring it full circle here. And there's a couple things here. One of the questions that I ask all the folks that I interview is, "What's your proudest career accomplishment?" And this ties into what you're talking about here, but it's about how diverse you are. It's not one. You're not one dimensional. And you just shared all these different things and skills that you've learned along the way. But a cool message that you have in your story, Joanne, is that, yes, you are a gearhead. Yes, you know how to paint. Yes, you know how to do mechanical work, fabrication, all of these things. But the writing piece of it. And I I found that interesting that the proudest accomplishment is actually writing for Carcraft magazine. And, and I bring this up because we often get trapped in the thinking of, okay, I'm a mechanic or I'm a painter, and you can honor these other skills that you have. Because writing is very different than mechanical or painting. And I find that very interesting. Do you mind sharing that story? Well, my, my dad, um, he had had gas stations. My, my dad was, I don't know if he was the world's worst businessman, but he was in the running and he had a lot of heart, but he was far too trusting with people. And one of his businesses that he had, you know, it was one of his, I'm going to make it big businesses was this uh, parts delivering starters and alternators and brake shoes. And he had this death trap. It was like a, looked like a UPS truck, only it wasn't. And it was an absolute death trap. It was like, you know, you, you found out how brave you were when you had to pump up the brakes to stop when going downhill. Oh, wow. And I became an ex, I became an expert at removing a radiator cap off of a radiator that was about to explode. I mean, that is what a death trap piece of junk this truck was. And it's, it's basically what I learned how to drive in was this truck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That my, my first driving lesson, my father pulls over, on this, on this dark interstate. And he goes, okay, you drive the rest of the way home, keep it in between the lines and, and wake me up if anything happens. (laughs) (laughs) The good old days, right? (laughs) Yep. And, um, so, you know, fast forward, I'm 16 years old driving this truck in the summer and on weekends. And I used to, you know, we were, we were poor. We were dirt, dirt poor. And so when you're that poor, you dream a lot. You have a lot of fantasies, a lot of dreams. And I used to dream about hot rod cars. And so it'd be like like lunchtime. I'd pull over. I'd get a grinder or a sub and some chips. And I'd pull over and I'd read Carcraft magazine and I would dream. I was just fascinated by everything, but I was especially fascinated by the paintwork in the magazine. As I had said earlier, I was an English major in school, and everybody thought that, you know, there was a good chance I'd be a writer. And a boyfriend I had had in my early 20s had told me, you know, I think you'd be an awful writer. You should never write. Don't ever tell anybody. You'll humiliate yourself. So he was very supportive then. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, he was such an expert on writing. Yeah, not quite. So anyhow... Fast forward, say, 20 years from that conversation, and I'm 38 years old. Uh, the editor, the editor of AZ Writers Magazine at the time, Keith Ball, a lot of my uh, motorcycle paint work was getting featured in Easy Riders and the other uh, publications that Keith had a hand in. And he emails me and he goes, I love your emails. Have you ever thought about being a writer? And I was like, 
Yeah. Wait, wait. I got to pause you, Joanne. Hey, folks, people pay attention to emails. <laughs> that is not a bygone thing. Pay attention. Love it. But that's sparked from your emails. That's amazing. Yeah. It wasn't like I said, hey, can I write for your magazine? Because right. I had I had let this uh, former boyfriend, I had broken up with him when I was 26, so he was long out of the picture. But his negative attitude had affected me so strongly that I hadn't even dreamed about being a writer until that email from Keith. And next thing I know, I'm writing for, I mean, literally every Harley magazine there is. I'm shooting photos. I'm doing event stories, bike features, tech stuff. It was all through the uh, 2000s. I did so much writing. And I'm glad I did because uh, what happened was anybody who follows motorcycling knows that the, the motorcycle boom of, of the 2000s went bust in around 2010. And so motorcycle magazines weren't paying as well. So I was like thinking I was getting involved with SEMA. I was meeting people and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe this is my chance to write for Carcraft. But it wasn't as easy as it sounded because the uh, automotive publications were going through their own shakeups. But I just never, you know, and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll have you write for us. And editors were kind of like playing musical chairs at all the different publications. And then we come forward to 2017, in the end of 2017, early 2018, and Carcraft has a new editor, Johnny Hunkins. And so I started talking to him about an idea I had for an article. The article idea was about how I had gone to the 1979 Carcraft Street Machine Nationals, which was the only car show in history where they had to call out the National Guard because there were riots. And I had been there in the thick of it. Really? Can, can you share a little bit more about that? What triggered the riots? Well, what happened was, you know, it's 1979 and people were a lot more free spirited then. And so they were drag racing in the streets. They were doing burnouts. And the center of the action was this intersection. Uh, I think it was Shadeland Terrace and some other street. And everybody was like, oh, you can't get to there. There's so many crowds. You can't get through there. So I'm driving around with my, my best friend, Mary Ann, and I go, man, I got to figure out a way. I, I don't want to miss this. This is a once in a lifetime thing. <laughs> you know, we're 19 years old and I wasn't exactly known for following the rules. So I'm driving these neighborhoods and I can look down these backyards and I can see there's this intersection. I got a clear sight line. I go, if I drive through these backyards, I can be right in the middle of everything. <laughs> wow. And so I start driving over these lawns and we come to our first wow. fence and I gently push the fence over and then we get to the other <laughs> side, you know, we push that one down too. And then, but then we come to, there's a fence where it has like the rails. And so I made Marianne get out in her platform shoes and she's teetering on these shoes, taking the rails down and then running across the yard, doing the same thing on the other <laughs> side. But we ended up on the corner of this like closed down abandoned gas station. And in front of us, they're having these huge burnout contests. And on the other side, it's a full bore drag racing. Like you're at the drag strip. Somebody wow. had brought some batteries and set up a Christmas tree there. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was you know, we're just sitting there for what seemed like ever watching this. And next thing we know, we hear all this screaming and people are running. And these two guys, they jump into, you know, we had the windows down. It was summer. They jump into the car. They're like, roll up the windows, roll up the windows. There's dogs running. And I was like, what? So we roll up the windows. And next thing you know, these all these dogs, German Shepherds, Dobermans, they're running by the car. One jumped over the hood, scrambled across the hood. It's like, what the hell? What in the um, world? The National, the National Guard had let dogs loose. 
And so that was the story I had written. And so I'm telling my editor, you know, my prospective editor about this story. And he goes, nah, not interested. I'm like, oh, okay. So now this is, now this next part is what's important. And this one characteristic that I have has really defined everything I've done in my whole life. He told me no. And I'm like, hmm, well, you know what? I'm going to write the story anyway. So I wrote the story and I sent it to him with a note. I said, you know, it's a kind of a fun story. This is just for you. I know it's not going to get in the magazine. And so then he calls me up, you know, not an email, a phone call. He goes, you got any photos? I go, yeah, but they're all faded. Um, The negatives were completely blank. All I had were these old faded prints. And he goes, well, send them to me. And he goes, you know what? We'll do it online. It's never going to make the magazine, but we'll we'll put Uh it online anyway. It might be a fun fun little thing for the website. It ended up being the second most read story on carcraft.com for 2018. Are you kidding me? And it also ended up on the cover of, I forget which issue, I think it was, might've been the September issue, but it ended up uh, being a, one of the cover features. It, so it did make it into print. Good for you, man. That is so cool. What ended up causing the riots? Just people fighting? No, no, because well, there weren't really riots, but they were just people. There were just too many people, and people started freaking out. And Got it. Um, I mean, they treated it like it was a riot, but it just turned into everybody panicking and running, and you know, hot, hot rod riots are basically drag racing and doing burnouts. That was their idea of riots. Wow, I'll tell you what, I'll I'll take that over what we see today any day. <laughs> It was, it, it was, it was, it was good times. And one little side note, my, my friend Marianne, who was like a sister to me, uh, in 2017, she was losing her battle against ovarian cancer. And she was the last week of her life. She's in the hospital and she had one good day. And we were like reminiscing about, you know, all, a lot of the things that we had done. And of course we talked about that uh-huh. weekend and she grabbed my hand and she said, you know what? you got to write this for car credit. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I should. She goes, come on, you can do it. Write this story and get it in Carcraft magazine. Oh, wow. I just got chills. That's the thing. It's like, there's been a lot of times in my life where someone has told me no, or you can't do this. And it's kind of easy to get all butthurt and say, oh, well, I'll try something else. But most of the time, with a few exceptions, I've uh, said, you know what? And it, the older I get, the more the more that becomes my mindset. You told me no. Well, guess what? I'm going to turn that into a yes. What a great motto. What a great overall message. The writing piece, I'm like, oh, wow. Once I get my website relaunched, I want to have some guest bloggers on. And writing is a craft. It is a real craft. And, you know, my my partner's an excellent writer. Writing's never been my craft. Talking has always been my craft. That's why I'm a podcast host and not a blogger. (laughs) But when I read your stuff, I'm like, this makes sense. It makes sense. It's poetic. And that's what I find great writers. It's very easy to read. It's it grabs your attention and you want to keep reading what's next. But I I do want to talk just a little bit about a couple of your other accomplishments. I'm going to read them out loud because sometimes we just need to hear it and chew on it for a moment. And this is really cool. You shared with me, I am the first woman to own a custom paint shop in 1979. My chopper was the first bike owned by a woman to appear on the cover of Easy Riders magazine in 2004. And you started building cars in 1980 and you're still doing it. Now, even though you haven't done the research on it, but you believe you might be the woman with the longest career in building cars. Those are no small feats. I mean, I, I know at one point I come and I said, wow, you're a trailblazer. And I think you, re- you referred back to me and said, I've never looked at myself that way. 
but this is trailblazing. <laughs> well, if somebody had told me when I was that young teenager driving that death trap truck, you know, this is the journey you're going to go on. I don't even think I would have been able to comprehend it. I didn't really think that far ahead. I just, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what I'm going to do. It was basically uh, how I survived. One of my favorite jobs I ever had was uh, I worked welding at a place called Stone Safety in Wallingford, Connecticut. And I was the first woman within a skilled labor position in that factory. And those guys did not want me there. They did everything they could to get me out of there. And it was just, you know, hey, it was, I wasn't thinking I'm going to try to prove anything to women. Um, for me, it was all about, you know, I'm a welder. I'm really good at what I do. This is a great job. I need to pay my rent. I'm not going anywhere. And that's just kind of how I've been. You know, it's like, okay, this is something I want to do and I'm going to do it. I just never really, you know, realized until much later in life that I was one of the first women that had done some of these things. It's really cool. And it, it starts somewhere. It has to start somewhere because trailblazers are about being there when no one else is. And it's about creating just by them showing up every day and doing their thing. Now what happens is other people see them and it starts changing these preconceived notions of what something is or what a position should or shouldn't be and who should be doing it. And I just think it's, it's so neat and I'm honored to be talking to you about this because this this is really, really cool stuff here. You go on to share that you are a member of the first all-women motorcycle project that was in 2006, the, the Chopper Chick Crew Bike Building Team, which is a super cool name. And the whole concept of that team, you said, inspired you to suggest the first all-women car build project, which was in 2012. It was the SEMA Mustang build. And I know there's been other all-female builds since then, but that was the first all-female build, was in 2012, that was featured at SEMA. And ironically, you headed the powertrain group, not paint. <laughs> Yep, so that's a long story for another time. See, there's another example of not backing down because when I found out for whatever reason that I couldn't be involved with the paint on that project, I'm like, well, I want powertrain. And they're like, well, that's not your wheelhouse. And I said, how do you know that? And so they, I guess maybe they figured that maybe – I wouldn't be good at it or, you know, they could, you know, fix it if I messed up. But for me, it's like, okay, I'm not an expert on engines, but the thing is I know a lot of people that are, and I can, after managing and running a shop for all these years and also being on the uh, chopper chick crew, I knew I could run a team and we put together this group of absolutely amazing women on the powertrain part of that project. And I met one of my, now one of my lifelong best friends, uh, Karen Salvaggio, on that project. Karen's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. Uh, we did a joint interview for Shift Up Now, and she is just an amazing person. Uh, and one of the things Karen and I uh, talk about and um, a viewpoint we share is both of us, we just say yes. When there's a chance to do something, we don't think about it, we jump in. And it's one of the reasons she's achieved a lot of firsts in her career. We both jump in feet first, and we're willing to do the work to make it happen. And that's what it's about. Sometimes you have to just jump in blindly and just trust the process. And that can be challenging sometimes. It's like a leap of faith. But the first women car build, you know, it was obvious it was going to happen. 2011 was when we had the initial uh, discussion about it. And I was talking about it with Marla Moore, who was chair of the SBN at the time, the SEMA Business Women's Network. And I was like, you know, we, we need to do this. 
sooner or later, there is going to be an all-woman car build, and the SBN needs to do it. So let's just do it. And we did. That is awesome. And the thing is, you straddle both sides. And what I mean by that is motorcycles and cars. And I think that's pretty neat because a lot of times folks will focus on one over the other. They may dabble in both, but you really split the two pretty equally. And I mean, you have paint work that's won you awards and you shared your proudest one is when your chopper won the top award in the country in 2004. It's, it's a plethora. It's not just cars. It's both, which is pretty neat. Now, do you have a preference, bikes versus cars? I don't think I have a preference. Um, you know, I'm pretty much up for anything. Um, I also I got involved uh, about, oh gosh, about eight years ago, painting uh, racing bicycle helmets. And it didn't really go anywhere. It was one of those things that I took on and I did it for a couple of years and then it just kind of petered out. And, you know, it's like you, you take a chance with, your business. And I took a chance. It didn't lead to anything. And then I get a a call a couple of years later from the husband of a woman whose helmet I painted. It turns out she was a uh, amateur triathlete and she was getting ready to turn pro. And she wanted a special paint job on her bicycle for Kona. And so her manager asks me, he goes, do you ever paint a bicycle? I'm like, no, <laughs> I think I can do it. And so I, I painted her bicycle and I painted the matching rims and she ended up coming in, I think, third. It was her first year as a pro at the Ironman Championship. I think she came in either second or third. Her name is Heather Jackson and I've painted her bicycle every year uh, since then and she's the number one female triathlete in the United States. I think she's fourth in the world right now. Wow. That is way cool. But I, I love, I love painting the bicycles because they're small. It's a, it's a quick hit. Oh, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's just so fun because they basically let me do what I want. and I just have fun with it. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this story because it's it's real easy to get caught up in seeing social media posts and seeing all the end results, but not the blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And you you started to talk a little bit about some of your hard, dark years. It happens. Everyone has the hard, dark years. It's a matter of keep showing up to see it through to the end. Do you care sharing a little bit about it, particularly around your best guy friend? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Being able to share those kind of experiences and help others get past them, it makes all the suffering, all the doubting, it makes it all worth it. It means that it wasn't meaningless. If I can help one person get through a tough time, it makes it worth it. I so agree with you. Now, you had mentioned that you were flat broke and you were driving this 1966 Pontiac Bonneville. The year was 1991. Yep. Kind of walk us through that a little bit. Well, manufacturing up in New England in the late 80s, early 90s was pretty dismal. Manufacturing was leaving that area in, in, in droves and so many people are out of work. You'd go to get a job delivering pizza and the line for people applying for the job would be literally around the block. It was, it was so dismal. And um, so I'm, I'm down to my last hot rod. No more Mustangs. I've got this uh, 66 Pontiac Bonneville two door. I'm desperately trying to hang on to it. It, it got like, you know, six miles a gallon and I would have flat tires because the tires were so worn out. I felt like a 31-year-old failure. And I was back to painting out of the first shop I ever had, which was the basement of my parents' house. 
And um, a buddy of mine from high school, Dave Belasevich, he was pretty much in the same situation. He was also a motorcycle painter. He, he was a fabricator. He was everything. He, he was absolutely amazing. And he was working out of this um, really dirty, nasty garage in back of his parents' house doing these spectacularly clean paint jobs. I don't know what it was. Um, you, you would see this beautiful clear coat and you'd never imagine that it was painted in this really dirty place that it was painted in. And it was, uh, it was really hard not to get discouraged. And I just did the whole take it, take each day as it comes, get through that day, get up the next morning and do it all over again. And, you know, and that's how I moved forward. And things were, things were bad. And all I wanted was to get a good job where I had benefits, where I had medical and dental and got that paycheck every week. And that was all I wanted, but there were no jobs. Um, So I was just basically surviving on scraps of paintwork that I could get here and there. So one day, uh, Dave and I were working in my parents' backyard and we're standing on this motorcycle frame. And he was always going on about how we should move to Florida and become famous bike painters because that's where all the hot work was happening was South Florida. That's where we needed to be. And I'd be like, you know, I just want to get a regular job. I don't want to hear your pipe dreams. Just shut up. And so here he is going on about it again. And I just tell him, look, I don't want to hear this anymore. Just shut up. And he grabs my hand. It was all very dramatic. He grabs my hand and he goes, someday you're going to be a famous bike painter and people are going to know your name and you're going to be on the cover of Easy Riders magazine and it's going to happen. And I pulled my hand away and I said, you're an idiot. Oh, wow. <laughs> And uh, eventually we both got jobs. And uh, so we weren't hanging out anymore because, you know, we had jobs. And about, I want to say eight months after that conversation, I get a phone call from my father that Dave had died. He had had a heart attack at age 33. Oh my gosh. And I went to the memorial something happened to me after the memorial and I'm walking back to my car and I go, Hmm, I think I'm going to load up some bike tanks that I've painted and go down to South Florida and see what kind of uh, reception I get down there, which is what I did. And about six months later, I loaded up everything I owned except for my furniture, which I kept in storage I had my, I had this Penske truck load. I had, what? I had two bikes. I had a Ninja and a Sportster. They're strapped to the walls. My air compressor, my house plants, dog, cat, paint, everything is in this truck. <laughs> my Honda Civic is is on a trailer behind me, and off I go to create a new life down in South Florida. And I did. I went down to South Florida and and I became a painter whose work was featured on the cover of Easy Riders magazine. Wow. I I mean, that, that's, that's like TV type stuff right there. It literally said those words to you and you followed through with what he had suggested. Well, the thing about those dark, dark years, I mean, there was, oh, there were times when it was beyond horrible. One of the reasons that made it so hard is that paint technology was changing at the time. That's when they were making the change from lacquer over into the urethane enamels and the acrylic enamels. And it took, it took the paint companies a couple of years to get things right. And so it was very challenging times for painters. So there were a lot of things that didn't go as planned. And I'd, I'd walk out of my shop after some horrific experience. And I think, well, I am looking at the setting sun thinking, why am I wasting my life? This sucks. It is not worth it. And, and then I'd say, okay, I got to go in there. I got to fix it. I got to get it done. I got to pay my rent. And I'd get up the next morning and I would just go through you know, take it one, one hour at a time and and get through it. Mm. And, uh, when Dave died, 
it's just something snapped in me. And I was like, you know, this guy believed in me. I didn't believe in me. And this is something that I need to do for him. And that's what I did. Wow. And then about two years after he made that comment and he passed away, your work was featured on the cover. Well, it wasn't quite that simple. Because I went down to Florida, I was down there for 18 months, and everything went right for me. I was painting for all the top builders down there. I was making a reputation. I was doing great. But I didn't like it down there. Even though I grew up near the city, I'm a country girl. I love being in the wide open spaces, under the tall trees, not in like a city, suburban kind of uh, atmosphere. And so I had gotten married to a bike builder down there, and he had accepted a job offer up in the Carolinas, and so we moved up here. And I thought, oh, no big deal. I'll just, you know, paint. Well, the guys up here in the Carolinas, they didn't want a woman painting their bike, and they certainly didn't want a Yankee woman painting their bike. In fact, uh, the shop that my husband had gotten a job at, I was supposed to be in charge of their paint department. And so we go, we sit down for this meeting after we've moved, after we bought a house and all the department heads are sitting down for this meeting. And then, you know, I take a seat and the president of the company says, wouldn't you rather be in the next room with all the other wives? Oh, hell no. <laughs> um, I go, I go, I'm, I'm head of the paint department. They go, no, you're not. You've got a husband. We can't take the food off the table of a hardworking male painter. We'd really rather you go in the room next door with the wives. Oh, wow. I have to ask, what year was this? 1996. Oh, my good Lord. <laughs> okay. And I was stunned. I was like, I moved all the way up here for this. Are you kidding me? So, you know, here it goes, okay? Dark days starting again. I had all the money saved from working down in Florida, so I had a pretty decent bank account. But that money got ate up in the first two years. So here we are, uh, January of 1998. I am broke. I am in debt. I have spent all the money that I made in Florida. I had to sell my beloved 66 Bonneville, the last of my, my hot rod cars. It was, it was so depressing. I'm like, here I am, a 36-year-old failure again. And I had painted six bikes in those two years. And then the 1998 Easy Rider show happened with all six bikes in it. And those bikes took all the top prizes, including best of show, two first prizes, a second prize, third place, all the bikes won. And that was how I met Keith Ball. And he said to me, well, if you paint a bike and bring it to the Columbus finals and it does well, we'll put you in the running for painter of the year. And maybe wow. we'll feature one of, one of your bikes in one of the magazines. So I said, okay. Is that Columbus? That's the Columbus finals. In what state's that in? Ohio. Oh, my hometown then. Ah, okay. I did not realize it. Is that where it's always held? They used to have it there every year. Oh, there are no more Easy Rider shows, but I, uh, I don't remember when the last one in Columbus was. So timing being everything. So that was on like a Sunday. Monday morning, I get a phone call from a guy who's got a 52 pan head and wants me to paint Stevie Ray Vaughan on the tanks. And so I spend three weeks killing myself because it's, it's a month before Columbus. Getting this paint job done get it back there, talk my client into bringing the bike up to Columbus. Bike goes up to Columbus, takes second place, best of show. And uh, the magazine ends up doing six features on my work. And that was my first Easy Riders Painter of the Year. Wow. <laughs> so it's so easy to get discouraged, but you can't give up. There's this old saying, you know, it's, it's always darkest before the dawn. And it sounds kind of cliched, but it's really, really true. You know, there's just times when you think it's just so dark. I just can't do this anymore. It's too hard. You just have to be patient and have faith because you can turn it around. That's such a great message because it is really easy to quit. It is easier. It's one thing to talk about it. 
but you have this experience that shows it. I wrote a book about my grandfather. It's called Grandpa's Wisdom. And the thing that I loved about my grandfather is that he had these one-liners. And my favorite one that he has is, everything always works out. And when I was younger, I would dismiss it constantly. Like, oh, God, here goes Grandpa again saying his saying. And But there's so much truth to that. And that's what life experience gives you is that you just have to stay at it. You have to stay at it and trust it. And that's the hardest part, I think. Well, it's easy to give up, but, you know, what have you got to lose by trying? The worst thing that can happen is that you're going to fail. But if you already feel you failed, you know, it doesn't really make any sense because you don't know for sure unless you try. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Joanne, I think what we can do right now is launch into the red line round because I think these questions really complement the conversation that we're having right now. And what the red line round is, just five rapid fire questions. There's no right or wrong answer to it. It's whatever pops into your head's the right answer. Are you ready? Okay. Yep. Who or what has been your inspiration through your journey in the industry? Hmm. Okay. That's a tough one. My inspiration, there's been a lot of people who I've been inspired by, but my overall inspiration is just grabbing life, just grabbing that life experience and not letting it go and going with it. That makes perfect sense. You know, people like Shirley Muldowney has been one of my big inspirations. John Kosmowski of House of Color is another uh, inspiration, but just life, because life is so short, it's so precious. And so just grabbing whatever I can and going with it. Mm, I love it. Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you get stuck on a job? Well, it's a lot easier these days than it was even, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, there's, there's so much availability of information on the internet. But the one thing I have learned from doing research on the internet is you really have to verify your sources when you use the internet. Don't just blindly follow some YouTube video. Uh, make sure the person who's doing the video or writing the article is an authority on it, that they preferably work in the industry. That's a great call out because I asked that question and majority of people say YouTube, but no one has ever alluded to checking the source. Just because they made a video doesn't make them an expert. There is a lot of bad information out there. I was doing an article for CarCraft on installing a door on a Camaro and how to line it up. And I, I had to watch half a dozen videos. I read some articles. And some of the videos were from car builders that I know. And they really didn't answer the meat of some of the questions that I had. And so I, I had to basically figure out a lot of stuff myself. And I'd kind of have to say, you know, people ask me, oh, they say, oh, you're so lucky to be talented. And it's like, talent only gets you so far. The biggest thing you need if you're going to work on cars, if you're going to turn wrenches, if you're going to work on the trades, the biggest tool you need is common sense. You got to slow down and figure it out. Very well said. My, uh... Grandfather always said, common sense is not always common. No, it's really true. There's a lot of great information on the internet, but there is a lot of bad information. And that's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about the articles that I do, the tech articles that I do, the books I write, trying to get that good information out there. Joanne, what excites you most about what you do? The people. I meet the most amazing people. I mean, projects come and go. Somebody asked me one time, how many, how many paint jobs have you done? And I mean, I, I literally couldn't count them. I don't have a clue. I tried to count them last year because it was last year it was 40 years. And I go, oh, wow, I'm going to count my paint jobs. And I got totally bored with it. It's like, okay, next, <laughs> do something else. I arrived at a lot. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the thing that sticks with you are the people that mm. you meet. And some of the people that I have met on my journey have become like family. That is such a great point. I so agree with you. It is the people, Joanne. I I feel like I'm truly building friendships and it's almost like a family. And it and it is. It's like that was one of the things that made me the saddest about the demise of the custom motorcycle. I shouldn't say demise, that's a strong word. You know, seeing the the boom of custom motorcycling come and go. Because I'd go out to Sturgis, I'd go to the, the, the smoke out, and it was like a family reunion. I mean, these people were like family, and I still feel that way towards them. They're lifelong friends. And since really getting heavily into SEMA and the uh, aftermarket industry, I've started gathering a whole new family. And... <sighs> For me, you know, yeah, okay, big deal. You, you, you win, you, your work wins awards. You maybe, you know, have a good week where you've got a nice paycheck. But it's all about the experiences that you have. And those experiences are with the people. And years later, that's what stays with you are those experiences. Mm, so agree with you. What is a personal habit or practice that helps you significantly in the industry when you feel stuck or discouraged? What I need to do is I need to relax because when you get discouraged, your head is filled with so much, so much negativity. And so what I do is I just kind of do what it takes to get away from that negativity to clear my head. Um, and it definitely doesn't happen in the shop. Maybe I'll go hiking. I'll spend some time with my nieces, uh, my time with my dog. Maybe I'll just kick back with, uh, you know, some cookies, some diet Coke and Netflix, but I'll do whatever it takes to just kind of wipe my brain clear. Love it. Because you're like, oh my gosh. And that was, I was really not good at that when I was younger. I'd have some paint job do, some customer would be mad at me and it would be like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. And it's like, uh, no, it isn't because a year from now, you're not even going to remember this customer's name. So you need to chill out. And so I've learned to chill out and just start, start fresh the next day. Sometimes when you are at your worst and you, it seems like, you can't do anything right. Everything you touch, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work out. You have to walk away. Even if all oh, the customer is having a meltdown, it's going to be the end of the world. If they can't get their project or pick up their car the next morning, you know what? It's not going to be, you got to walk away because you're not doing yourself or your customer, your client, any good walk away, recharge, and then get on it again with a, with a fresh attitude. Joanne, what is your parting advice to other femme mechanics finding their way in the skilled trades industry? It's really, really easy to get discouraged. But you got to remember, every time something discourages you, whether it's like a coworker who you feel they're sabotaging you or a boss who's giving you all the crappy jobs or family that's giving you attitude because they don't like your choice of career, you got to remember everything you're feeling, there are other women that have experienced it and they pushed through and they made it happen for themselves. And you have to realize that you can do it too. And it sounds like maybe that's too simple, but it's basically all it is. Just know that you are not alone. And, and that's one of the reasons why I've tried to share uh, stories from my challenging days because I look at it that if, if I can do it, I mean, I've, I've overcome a lot of obstacles that I didn't even get into in this podcast, a lot of obstacles. And I've, I've had devastating car wrecks, um, physical limitations, and I just push through. And that's what you got to do. You just have to know you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. Absolutely. Joanne, where and how can people connect with you? Well, they can go on my website, which is uh, crazyhorsepainting.com. 
I also have a Facebook page under Joanne Bortles and a Joanne Bortles Instagram. Uh, I have a regular column that I'm writing in Chevy Hardcore Magazine, and you can follow my Painting 101 series in Chevy Hardcore. I also write for the Shop Magazine, and I wish I could say that I still write for Carcraft, but there is no more Carcraft Magazine. Uh, The company closed it, but my articles are still on Carcraft, and if you go on uh, hotrod.com, and do a search for Joanne Bortles, you can find my articles. And also on my Instagram, I have a link tree uh, in my profile, and that has links to my website and all my articles. Joanne, thank you so much for getting in the driver's seat today and sharing your wealth of knowledge and experiences with the Femcanic community. I've been looking forward to this one, and you delivered as expected. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me on here. And I hope somebody that's listening to this, who's feeling that my job in the automotive shop or my job in the body shop, or the welding shop, I'm, you know, they're getting discouraged. Just keep at it. You're going to get through it. Keep on, keep on. I'm Joanne Bortles. My shop is Crazy Horse Painting and I'm a femcanic. Linda Meck is in the driver's seat next. She is the owner of a Woman's Worth Paint and Body Shop in Tucson, Arizona, and Jill of All Trades. Linda restores classic cars for living with focus on bodywork, paint, and interiors. During the episode, she shares her inspirational story that led her to the industry. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribes for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?